Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. And today we're going to do a little beyond and we're going to do a little bit of breastfeeding. And actually, more to the point, I think we're going to talk a little bit about what happens before the breastfeeding gets the problem going. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Rebecca Decker. Dr. Decker, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're just so glad to have you because I've actually visited your website many times. We had to uh, chase you down a little bit to get you here this year, but it's really great to have you. For those of you who aren't familiar, I will tell you that Rebecca Decker is the founder of Evidence-Based Birth and author of a new book, Babies Are Not Pizzas. They're born, not delivered. Dr. Decker is the mother of three children, and she has earned a bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in nursing. She has built a strong reputation in maternal and infant health circles for her pioneering work as the founder of Evidence-Based Birth. The mission of Evidence-Based Birth is to raise the quality of childbirth care globally by putting accurate, evidence-based information into the hands of families and communities so that they can make informed, empowered choices. So, with that being said, I'd like to talk a little bit about birth trauma, since that's where Dr. Decker's passion is. And interestingly, I also have talked with Dr. Colby uh, Cohen-Archer, And she also, now she's a therapist, so she helps women on the other side of what happens once they have been through this birth trauma. But today, I'm sure that Dr. Decker is going to talk to us about her own experience with birth trauma, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, First of all, can you talk to us a little bit about how common is birth trauma and what is it? Just give us a little intro here, if you could, please. Yeah. So first of all, I think it's helpful to get our definition straight. So birth trauma is defined as a birth event with actual or threatened serious injury or death, or, and this is a big or, when the person who's giving birth feels like they've been stripped of their dignity or treated inhumanely. And this happens at about 33% to 45% of all births in the U.S. And rates are even higher in some countries and in certain states of the U.S. And birth trauma is is really important because I know you focus on breastfeeding, but as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, the effects of birth trauma can trickle down to the breastfeeding relationship. And for me, I am super passionate. I know you talked about interviewing someone who treats birth trauma. I'm super passionate about preventing it through evidence-based care and through family-centered care. There's a lot of things that we do in our healthcare system in the U.S. in particular that kind of sets up what we call almost like an eatrogenic 
birth mm. trauma. So the trauma mm. that is caused by the system, by the people working in the system, um, that is entirely preventable in many cases. I would totally agree. And I know that we're not at the point where we're talking about your book yet, but I just want to tell the audience, as I was reading the first chapter in your book, I could feel my whole brain moving to the end of the sentence and the end of the paragraph because I knew it was going to happen. And what Dr. Decker is talking about today is not just her. It's not just her providers. It's not just her hospital or her locale. This happens a lot. And I know because I've been the labor nurse and I have seen this many, many, many times, more times than I want to count, Uh, which reminds me, where are you located? So I'm located in central Kentucky, so the southeastern part of the U.S., Got it. Got it. All right. We just gave the uh, incidents of here, there, and yon, and I was thinking, oh, wait, wait a minute. So, so, <laughs> so where is she? So, in your opinion, then, what have we got to do to change, first of all, the existence and then the incidence of birth trauma as you describe it? I think the biggest thing is probably just to raise awareness because everybody knows somebody who has a horror story from their oh, birth, yeah. right? Like all I have to do is bring up the fact that I work in childbirth and that I write about childbirth, the evidence-based birth. And everybody wants to tell yep. me either their traumatic story or their sister-in-law's traumatic story or their yeah. cousin's traumatic story. And, you know, there there's a reason why these numbers are so high and And it's preventable. You know, women who experience birth trauma often describe their care as being inhumane or cold or uncaring. Um, They may be in a a scary situation and the providers talk over them as if they're not there. They're not there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Or they might, you know, be afraid that they're going to die or their baby's going to die. And there's threats, you know, that your baby is dying or your baby might die. So there's lots of threats being thrown around in the room. And in the end they're kind of gaslighted and women are just told, well, you know, assuming their baby is, is alive. They say, well, you have a healthy baby. You should just be happy with that. And, Mm -hmm. and, and totally make them feel like they're crazy for having feelings of trauma. And so that trauma can go on in some people, but not all to turn into full blown PTSD, which I feel like I'm very Mm -hmm. thankful that that has never happened to me, but I've met many people who've experienced PTSD and, I think, you know, we talk about how do you solve this problem? It's important to raise awareness because when you read Babies Are Not Pizzas, you'll see that a lot of the little things that are done, the little cultural ways we care for women in labor and delivery units actually contribute to that trauma. But hospital staff don't even realize that. Like, it's almost like there's this system going that's creating trauma. And you know how they say like fish can't see water? Sometimes you can't see the little things that are happening that are being perpetuated in your unit that are contributing to this trauma. And so what I'm, my hope is that I can kind of raise awareness of the fact that this is a problem and that it's preventable. And a lot of times it's just that simple fact of opening your eyes to realize, Oh, like this is, this is what's wrong with our system and reaching nurses, reaching providers, 
But also, especially, I'm really passionate about reaching students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you, every week, I get at least two messages from former students of mine. I used to be uh, an assistant professor at a large research university, and I interacted with a lot of students. I just ran into one today. She wasn't even a nursing student. She had been a dental student, but she had taken a class that I facilitated, and she remembered me. And it just really, to me, the impact that you can have on students who then five or 10 years later um, can be a part of changing the culture. So I really love working with students and with young people. I also believe in educating people in high school and college about birth before they have children, before they get pregnant, so that they can make choices that can protect them from birth trauma because there are ways to lower your risk. And one of the ways you can lower risk is through, you know, the choices that you make with who you choose to be there with you at your birth. Oh, absolutely. And as you mentioned the dental student, and as you mentioned uh, how many people tell their horror stories, I was thinking of a dental hygienist who, of course, did my six months uh, cleaning And every single time that I got in the chair for my routine cleaning, the dental hygienist, who knew I was a labor nurse, told me about her horrific birth experience. Well, the first time that she told me, uh, I was thinking, oh, she seems kind of old to be having a baby. But, you know, I, I did say to her, well, so when was your baby born? She said, 23 years ago. And I remember thinking, this is so sad that 23 years later, she can tell this story as if it was yesterday. And honestly, every single six months that I went there, she retold and retold and retold me that story. And of course, I can't respond because I got all this stuff in my mouth. But the fact of the matter is, it does have an impact on women. And it's not something that they can shake easily. Now, clearly, you did not shake it easily. How old is your oldest? So my oldest is 11, but yeah, I still think about it all the time and it's shaped my entire career Yeah. after she was born in, in a good way. I experienced something that's called post-traumatic growth, which not everyone experiences, but it is um, a possibility where you feel after you work through the trauma and wrestle with it, you come out, you can come out on the other side in some cases feeling like stronger than ever and more empowered. And for me, it really left me with a strong impulse to advocate for better care. And so that's why I created evidence-based birth because I wanted to, you know, spread the word about the kind of care that can prevent birth trauma. Absolutely. And it's so great that you could come out on the other end of that by asking yourself, what can I do to help other people? That is truly, that is true growth. I have to tell you that when I read chapter one of your new book, Babies Are Not Pizzas, the the first thing that I realized was that you had put into uh, uh, italics each event that had happened. So the epidural, the pushing, the uh, uh, each thing, the, the vaginal exams, et cetera, et cetera. And each time I came to each one of those, I thought, there's no evidence for this, there's no evidence for this, there's no evidence for this, there's no evidence for this. And it struck me that yours was probably not the worst situation that I've ever learned about, but it certainly was very demonstrative of the fact that uh, it's common and it's wrong. It's just wrong. 
I noticed that when you said the push, 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 one, two, three, I could I could hear that in my brain. I noticed that you put it on all caps. And I'm thinking, this is like the stupidest thing to be telling the, the patient. It's stupid. Uh, but tell us a little bit about how this seemingly normal event became very traumatic for you, but also it seemed to me like pretty counterproductive. You were pushing for, what, three hours and then, so so the birth thing was less than optimal. But then, and we'll talk about this on the other side of the break, um, getting your baby t- to be with you was kind of that next whole, whole hurdle. So when you were having this experience, did you realize that there's no evidence for this? Did you feel coerced into doing whatever the staff said? What was going through your head here? I mean, for sure, I, even though I was a nurse and I was working on my doctorate, I was not a labor and delivery nurse. So I really came into that experience just wanting to be a compliant patient. Oh. I, I wanted the nurses to like me. I wanted, you know, I, I trusted my doctor and the nurses. I, I thought they had their best interests in mind. So some things struck me as odd. Like they mm-hmm. wouldn't let me get out of bed. Oh, um, so you know, I was hooked up to all of these continuous, the continuous monitor, the IV. Um, I was told I was not allowed to eat and drink. Even when I had a heartburn, they wouldn't let me take a little pill for heartburn. They had to give it to me through my IV. And I had a bad reaction to the IV medication they gave me where I um, got really dizzy and sick from the medication. And it was just all of these little things that just like didn't add up. Like, no. why, why? But why? Like, it's kind of silly. Like, you won't even let me have a sip of water with a pill, you know, or you won't even let me get up and walk to the bathroom. I have to use a bedpan. And when I couldn't pee in the bedpan, they're like, we have to catheterize you. Even though I was perfectly healthy, I didn't have an epidural at that point. And I know you mentioned epidural, and I do believe that epidurals are a very effective form of pain relief. But what I write about in in the book is that, you know, it was the only method of pain relief that they offered me. You know, they did not give me an environment. They did not allow me to move around in different positions. Nobody offered me a birth ball or a peanut ball. They didn't, you know, provide me with any support. So it was my understanding that you went to a childbirth ed class of some kind prior to birth, right? Yes, I did. I did have a childbirth class. I wasn't completely uneducated and I had read some books, but um, in retrospect, the the childbirth class really just prepared us to be good compliant patients. It was kind of like, this is what will happen. This is what we'll do next to you. This is what we'll do next to you. So I was kind of being trained to just follow their directions. So when I got in that situation, I didn't know how to speak up for myself. Even when, when my intuition was saying, things weren't right. I I didn't know how to say no or yes, or can I do something different here? And I wasn't really educated about all the different ways you can stay comfortable. And now I know there's research showing that when you offer non-drug comfort measures first, such as getting in a tub or having um, acupressure or doing relaxation exercises, that those um, really improve your health outcomes for Absolutely. you. Um, and then only use medications as they become needed. But in my case, it was like an epidural or nothing. So you can lay flat on your back and squirm and writhe and suffer through these contractions, you know, being tied down to the bed, literally, or we can give you an epidural. So I chose the epidural. And, you know, even as you're talking, I can just feel my blood pressure going up all over again here. Because lying on one's back is probably the most unphysiologic position that I can think of and 
the fact that the, the a woman is being asked to do the hardest work that she is ever going to do, and oh, by the way, she's got to do it with no food and no water. This is absolutely ludicrous, and we have been doing this for at least 40 years that I know of, and I'm sure much before that as well, and I believe that it is all predicated on the idea that that's the way we've always done it, and that is just, that is not evidence-based. It's not even common sense. So anyway, uh, for those of you who are listening, I'm here today with Dr. Rebecca Decker. She is talking about her new book and her birth experience, but her book is Babies Are Not Pizzas, and we will be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, and I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Rebecca Decker. Now, before we go on talking to Dr. Decker about her own birth story, her book, and her passion to make the birthing world better, let me just tell you that for those of you who have ever had even the remotest thought of getting your IBCLC certification, I'd like you to consider coming to my hybrid course so that you can do some of it online and so that you can meet me as well. Or if that doesn't work for you, I'd like you to consider my all online program. Visit me at mariebiancuso.com. I, you know, I know, I know, I got to spell it for you. It's M-A-R-I-E-B-I-A-N-C-U-Z-Z-O dot com. So, Rebecca, I want to go to the next place, which was where, and, and as I was reading the story, I thought, oh, the next thing they're going to do is take our baby away from her, and they're going to have some really stupid reason for doing it. I did think, though, that the business about the her hair is still wet, I thought that one took the prize. But anyway, um, after you've been through this absolutely awful experience, you've had a lot of pain. Uh, You said that at one point you were in such bad pain that you vomited over the side of the bed. You were so tired that you basically, you know, could barely keep yourself together. And the next thing you know, your baby has disappeared into Never Never Land. What happened? Yeah, so even though, you know, I had a lot of interventions in my birth and a lot of restrictions placed on me, I don't necessarily think any of that was traumatic, you know. I agreed to everything that was done to me, even though I I was unsure about it. But, you know, really the hard part was was being separated from my baby. And and if you read the book, you can and read about how she was taken away for almost three hours, even though both of us were healthy and it was for a quote observation. And I was still, you know, numb from the epidural, so I couldn't get up and go <laughs> demand my baby. All I could do was just keep pressing my call light and asking for my baby every 10 or 15 minutes. And um, they kept saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then, you know, finally they were like, oh, her, you know, we gave her a bath and her hair's all wet. So, you know, she, we have to wait for her hair to dry. And I was like, oh, you know, she does have a lot of hair. So maybe, maybe that's right. I was just trying to justify what was happening. Um, but it, it took a long time to get her back. And by the time I got her back, it had been three hours and she was very sleepy. Oh, the sad thing is we even have a little home video my husband took um, with our camera through the window of the nursery. And she was just in an isolate all by herself, nobody doing anything to her, nobody actually observing her. And in the video, you can see her moving around, you know, her head and she's looking all around the room and she's kicking. Where's my mom? Yeah, she's wiggling and squirming, and she was wide awake that whole time. But nobody was touching her. Nobody cuddled her. The only time they touched her was to do, you know, her vitamin K shot and put the ointment in her eyes and do her assessment. And it wasn't until three hours later that they brought her back to me. And at that point, she was too sleepy to latch effectively. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and the night and I and I experienced what many American women experience, and that my labor nurse was not. A, adequately trained in breastfeeding support, which is very common still, the research shows, and she didn't know how to help me. So although I did have an IBCLC visit me at one point during my stay, um, it, it didn't fix the fact that, you know, we did not get a good latch. We never got good latches, and I had extremely um, 
a lot of trauma done to my nipples from those first feeds. So I really, really struggled and continued to be in severe pain every time I breastfed until uh, a while after I was discharged, I finally was able to get a latch check um, from a lactation um, counselor. And that just changed my life moving forward. Because once once they fixed my latch, I had an overabundance of milk. I've always struggled that with that with each of my subsequent children is is too much milk. And once they helped me with both of those things, I was able to be a happy mom. I loved being a mom. But oh. all leading up to that was just tears and crying and, you know, sleepless nights and lots and lots of pain and not knowing what to do with the severe engorgement. I also learned later on that one of the reasons I had such severe engorgement was because I, they had given me so much fluid. They had pumped me full of fluids my entire 24-hour labor at a really sure. high rate. Yeah. And I had pitting edema in my legs and my arms and my breasts were extremely engorged and painful. And it wasn't until I got help from kind of like a community birth worker who helped me that I finally moved past it. But there was nobody to call for help. You know, my OB couldn't help me. My pediatrician couldn't help me. Um, The hospital didn't have any kind of home visitation. There was no clinic I could go to that would, like, help me. So, and and to hire a private lactation consultant at the time for me was out of reach. So I can really identify with how how many women in our country, um, you know, why they give up breastfeeding, why they're not able to continue because the lack of support in my community was just endemic and, and still is problematic to this day. Yeah. And actually I I was just going to say, I personally think that if you have been left alone with your baby when she was alert and you were alert and if she had latched herself on, you might not need have needed much, if any, expertise or expert help. It may well have been, because I've seen these babies that do what I call self-service, okay? They really do hop on and they do well from the beginning. But clearly, they whisked your baby away. So she didn't even have the opportunity to try some self-service for herself. And oh, by the way, that was certainly part of your engorgement problem as well. You had that big three-hour delay And my guess would be at that three hours, that didn't really count because she probably didn't know much, did she? Um, You know, and I'm also fairly certain that they gave her formula at some point. I'm not sure if they did in the first three hours, but I know they did later on in the hospital stay um, without my permission. So because she was spitting up formula at one point, I could see it. So there were definitely just everything seemed stacked against me in terms of I wanted to exclusively breastfeed. But everything kept sabotaging it. And and it wasn't that I was a failure as a mom. It was that the system was failing me. Like um, these staff were not trained in ways to support uh, the breastfeeding relationship. And in fact, they, they continued my entire hospital stay to do things to interfere with it. Right. So right. Um, thankfully, that hospital now is a baby-friendly hospital. But even still, their rates of exclusive breastfeeding, according to the Joint Commission, are still pretty low. Uh, which doesn't surprise me. And I hear that that babies are still frequently um, given formula and that actually a lot of the pressure comes from um, pediatrics and the pediatric residents. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sure. And, you know, here's the thing. What you mentioned about the system. Very often people ask me about how we're going to fix the breastfeeding problems. And sometimes I say, you know, breastfeeding does not exist in a vacuum here. The mother is in this 
health system where, first of all, I'm a real believer in the fact that bad advice or bad interventions are worse than no advice or no interventions. Sometimes if everybody would just keep quiet and let the mother and the baby do what they want to do, uh, a lot of these problems would probably take care of themselves. But no, we've got to put these mothers in these awkward positions and then we've got to tell them that they can only do this and not that and so forth and so on. And, you know, I think it's really pretty remarkable that you came out as well as you did. Although you sound like you're a pretty determined mother. You knew what you wanted. You were going to make it happen no matter what. Am I reading you right? I mean, I guess so. But even the most determined mother can can easily give in because, sure. you know, when you combine these kind of stressors with the massive amount of sleep deprivation and exhaustion yeah. from a long, complicated birth, um, I was pretty desperate. I, I was pretty upset. And if I hadn't found that local birth worker who would help me out with a latch check, I don't know what I would have done. And I also got help from the La Leche League leader oh. and uh, the group of women. And, you know, it's it really differs depending on where you live. I know some parts of the country breastfeeding is considered the norm and you're kind of looked down on if you don't breastfeed but it's like different in in the southeast um, I rarely have ever seen anybody breastfeeding in public it's extremely uncommon yeah you see a lot of people propping bottles still where I live and none of my friends had had babies yet none of them knew how to breastfeed I was just I felt really lonely so um, I know that there's probably still people who feel that way and yeah when you combine it with the sleep deprivation and a traumatic birth it's just, you know, a situation that for many people won't end the way they want it to. And I do feel that, you know, the funny thing was, is at the time, I didn't think of this birth experience as traumatic. It wasn't until about a year later that I kind of put all the puzzle pieces together and mm. realized like, oh, that's why I feel like mm. crying every time I think about the birth. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this rigid power structure. I got a charge out of it, and not in a good way, when you said, I felt like I needed to be the compliant uh, patient. They had told me what was going to happen. I was going to go along with it. You know, I I thought that's the way it was. But uh, it seems to me that evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice, seems like it has taken a front stage posture if it's, I don't know, cancer or orthopedics or something else, it seems to me like it takes a really big backseat where it comes to obstetrics and uh, newborn care. What's your take? Yeah, so this is something that I've wrestled with for many years because later on in the book, I go on to describe how I was trying to make change, but not only just me, but other people in my community were trying to change maternity care for the better. And in particular, there was a a young resident doctor at that same hospital who, you know, identified with me. One of the same things as me in terms of evidence-based care, truly supporting families during the birth process and, and, and supporting their informed consent and autonomy. And she took care of one of my friends who I met through the evidence-based birth blog. And um, when she stood up for this mom who wanted some things that were not routine, not tradition at the hospital, but were backed by evidence, this resident then was retaliated against. And that 
the retaliation has yep. continued to affect this doctor's career Absolutely. years after this event occurred. And it's, to me, um, I was just like blown away. I was like, if a doctor doesn't even have power to change things, like who has the power? So I started doing a lot of thinking and reading and I finally found a model developed by Dr. Barbara Love, who is an ex, a research expert in systems of oppression. I discovered mm. that um, there was this model of, of the pillars of oppression that you could apply to maternity care. And it all has to do with power hierarchies and how those hierarchies are upheld. So Dr. Love's model really inspired me to just get out a pen and a piece of paper. And I wrote down every profession in the hospital And then I organized them from the people with the most power and the people with the least power at the bottom. And the people with the most power, like the hospital administrators and hospital lawyers, the chief obstetrician. Um, But you just keep going down the power structure and get, you know, down to obstetricians, down to nurse manager, midwife, resident, nurse, doula, student. Then you get to the person who's giving birth and their partner and their baby. And they are at the very bottom of the structure. But I thought your audience might find this interesting because I've done this, I've talked about this in a lot of workshops around the U.S. and Canada, and often when I have people like arrange themselves in the power hierarchy and figure out who's at the top and who's at the bottom, often they'll put the lactation consultant at the bottom, even beneath the family. And and this is like birth professionals themselves and lactation consultants. And I thought, you know, how indicative of is this of our you know, what we think about breastfeeding and prioritizing it. If, if everybody who works at hospitals, including lactation consultants, feel like they have less, the least power of anybody in the room. And when in reality, we should be at all a team with all equally valid, important roles. And so in my book, I talk more about how do we get there? How do we get from that strict top-down power hierarchy to a family-centered team where we're all focused on the family and we're all valued for our contributions to the team. I I totally agree with everything you said, but you probably knew I was going to say that. Uh, (laughs) But I also think that there is some headset that the people that have the advanced degrees and the certifications and the credentials or they have the legal prowess, somehow feel like they're at the top of the power hierarchy, and they they are, but they miss a major piece, which is this mother and this family are, are there, uh, and without the, the mother and the family, quite honestly, the rest of us don't have a job at all. So it would seem to me that we would offer more respect to the mother and the family for doing what, honestly, they could do at home. And and I know that by the time you got around to your second baby, you did have a home birth. Uh, But, you know, we've got to realize that we should be putting the patient at the top of the list, not at the bottom. And you're right. There are people who feel like they are even less than the family and it's um, it's 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 pretty. Hey, everybody! Uh, don't go away. I'm here today with Dr. Rebecca Decker. She is the author of "Babies Are Not Pizzas; They're Born, Not Delivered." And we will be right back after this short break. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894 and ask for your bulk discount. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash good donor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host, I am at MarieBiancuso.com, and I'm here today with Dr. Rebecca Decker, who is the author of Babies Are Not Pizzas. And 
before we went to break, we were talking about the hierarchy of power in the hospital. We were talking about the healthcare system. And now I want to go to really what is the total opposite, which is those people who are just a little bit outside of the traditional healthcare in America. And that is the uh, professional midwife and the doula. Rebecca, I know that with your second baby, you had a home birth and you told your story of how you got uh, a, a midwife to take care of you. And you sort of presented that as being kind of underground, thought that was an interesting word. And I believe that you also had a doula. Can you speak a little bit to how this went for you? Yeah, so the second time around, I I had a lot of time uh, between pregnancies, so I did a lot of research, being a researcher, and I started by making a bullet point list of everything that had happened to me in my first birth, and once I realized that so much of what had been done to me was not evidence-based, I kind of lost trust in that hospital, and that's the hospital I was required to give birth at, because it was affiliated with my university, and my insurance didn't cover anywhere else. Um, But even still, when I made a new list of, you know, this is what I want at my birth, these are the things that will support and protect me and my family and, you know, help promote breastfeeding and a good postpartum experience. Everything on my list, unfortunately, was not being supported at the local hospitals. Maybe a few of the things on my list, uh, like I wanted skin-to-skin care this time, and, and now that was routine. But otherwise, a lot of my other goals and wishes for the birth were just not really available at the hospitals, and I would have had to fight for them. Yep. Yep. So I, I looked at the research, and for, for people who are having their second baby and they've had a vaginal birth before, which I luckily had had with that first birth, um, home birth is a really good option for most second-time moms, especially, especially if you've already had a successful vaginal birth. So I basically looked at the research, typed it up, sent it to my husband, and he was like, okay, you know, I guess because he had always, of course, been a little, like most Americans, you know, suspicious of home yeah, birth. Yeah. So. We did hire a midwife. It was underground because at the time and even still today, um, only nurse midwives can practice legally in my state. And and there's only a couple of them that do home births and there was not one available for me. So the only option for hiring a midwife was to hire someone who was practicing without a license and um, could technically face legal action from the state if if the state decided to prosecute them. Um, at the time, the state was not actively going after the midwives, but it was always a possibility. So they could not advertise themselves. You know, your your midwife couldn't have a website or a Facebook page. Like it was just kind of word of mouth. Somebody might be willing to share the name and phone number of a midwife. And thankfully, legislation was just passed in 2019 to create a legal pathway for those midwives, but um, it hasn't gone into effect quite yet. They're still writing the regulations. So I did have a home birth. Um, the care was completely different. My, mm-hmm. my Compared with my visits with my OB, the visits with my midwife were about an hour long, and she spent a lot of time preparing me for the birth, um, doing a lot of nutritional counseling, a lot of emotional support, and 
helping me figure out how to integrate a second child into my life. And I ended up having an amazing birth experience with that midwife supporting me. And after my baby was born, I asked her, like, well, when when do we give him a bath? Thinking back to how my first baby had been, you know, bathed. And I didn't know if that's something we're supposed to do immediately or whatever. And she's like, Rebecca, he's your baby. You can give him a bath whenever you want. And I was like, you're right. Like, (laughs) he is my baby. It was such a paradigm shift from the time before when they had treated the baby as if, you know, she wasn't even related to me. It's like they just took her away and washed her and bathed her and did all these things to her without ever checking with me. And in this case, it was like nobody's going to do anything to my baby without my permission. And in fact, I'm the one making the decisions. And um, the, the care, the contrast between the two types of care, the two models of care was so intense and stark that I was like, wow, I have to share this with other people. I have to help spread the word about this type of care because this doesn't just have to happen at homes. It can also happen in hospitals. It happens in birth centers. You can have this type of family-centered care that respects your autonomy in a cesarean birth. It's, it's, it's a different way of thinking about the family as a whole unit um, and, and protecting that bond between the parent and the child, which was violated in my first birth. So yeah, it was incredibly powerful. And and speaking, you know, I know this is a breastfeeding podcast. Research shows that home birth midwives have incredibly high breastfeeding rates after the birth. And I think obviously part of that might be self-selection in terms of people, people who choose a home birth, but, but the amount of breastfeeding support I got from my midwife was par none. Like you could not the hospital could not even compete with it. Like, she was there. She was observing our breastfeeding from the very beginning. She came back the next day. She was observing a breast, you know, and then she just kept coming back to my house and checking on me and how is the feeding going and weighing my baby and observing feeds and helping me troubleshoot anything. Continuity so, of care. Yeah. But also <laughs> the fact that she came to my house, you know, like I'll never forget with my first baby. I was like, I got discharged from the hospital and then my milk came in, right? Your milk comes in when you, by the time you go home after a vaginal birth and and nobody was there to check on me. Nobody. And it's so hard to leave the house as a new mom. So having somebody who would come to me as a, as a, a freshly postpartum mom with a brand new baby and, and to check on that breastfeeding relationship was just incredibly powerful. And I can see why um, wow. most home birth midwives have, of exclusive breastfeeding rates of about 95% at six weeks. So it just makes total sense. And that was actually one thing that helped us pass the legislation in Kentucky to legalize the certified professional midwives was being able to show legislators the effects on breastfeeding because they felt really strongly about that. Well, that is good. Uh, There were a couple of things that came to my mind, especially as you were telling the story about, well, she's your baby. You can uh, bathe her whenever you want to. I am reminded of Dione Young's book, and I would have to look, but I want to say that Dione's book came out in 1990 or 1992, and it it was uh, called Changing Childbirth, and I remember reading that book, and in it was a sentence that was from a mother who said, I was home for the, with the baby for several days before I realized that the baby did not belong to the hospital. And I was so struck by that statement 
that in the hospital, we kind of take over. We do, we bathe, we decide, we whatever, and the mother is sort of on the periphery of all of that. In in fact, I've had patients ask me, "Uh, Marie, is it okay if I breastfeed my baby? Now It's like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, clearly, the home birth was a very different paradigm, and it also shows how much control you had of yourself and your parenting experience, Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, it's it's the bond between, you know, uh, a new parent and their baby can, is so intense. And yeah. really, we should be treated as like a one unit rather than two separate people. And yeah, you're right. I, I have visited so many friends in the hospital and the nurse will come in to do the first infant bath and they'll just like, you know, just start doing it. And I'm like... Yep. But the mom's going to be giving baths for the rest of this baby's, like, infancy and toddlerhood. Like, we need to start empowering parents to be the ones to be the primary caregivers, even immediately from birth. And, yeah, I I do believe that there is this concept of, like, I I remember even with my first, after the birth the next day, I wanted to get up and walk around a little bit, just, you know, walk the halls. And I asked if I could just bring my baby with me oh, and no, they were, no 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 <laughs> oh no they were like you're not allowed to carry your baby in the hallway I was like but it's my baby and they're like it's legal liability you were going to drop the baby you need to push it in the little bassinet yeah. so I had to like push my baby around in the bassinet <laughs> I was like but when I go home in one day I'm going to be carrying my baby right. everywhere <laughs> right. so I thought that was kind of interesting Rebecca, do you have some quick tips for first the parents and secondly the healthcare providers who might be listening? If you were to just boil it down to two or three things, what could the parent do? What could the professional do to uh, empower families so that we can improve maternity care practices? Yeah, I think going back to, you know, I I believe in talking with high schoolers and college students about this because it's important for them to be thinking about this before they even get pregnant because one of the first decisions you make when you get pregnant is, you know, who's going to be my provider? Like, Uh am I going to have an OB or a midwife or a family doctor and who is it going to be? And most people in America research shows choose their provider for their birth based on who takes their insurance and maybe who did their well woman care. And given the fact that we have such high rates of birth trauma and unnecessary interventions in this country, I think we need to start rethinking about how we pick who's going to be there at our birth. Because obviously, just the closest clinic that takes my insurance or who did my GYN care isn't going to cut it. So I really recommend shopping around and especially recommend asking doulas who they who are their favorite providers. Ooh, and, yes, I agree. Yeah, because they've seen so many providers at so many different births. Yes. At every hospital in town. So they really have an interesting perspective. They know who is, you know, uh, promotes informed consent and protects your autonomy and who are the safest providers who are the least likely to cause birth trauma. So I really believe it's it's important to gather a team around you you can trust and and then start educating yourself. Um, 
Unfortunately, I meet a lot of parents who think that they don't need to take a, a good childbirth class because they think they can just Google everything or watch YouTube videos. They do. They do. <laughs> yeah. And this is very problematic. You know, I'm horrified by how much outdated and bad information is online. So as a researcher, I see it all the time, all the inaccurate information. And you can't just go to a class that teaches you how to be a good patient like I did. Like you really need to take a childbirth <laughs> right. class. That teaches you all your options and also, um, you know, how to speak up for yourself. So, um, yeah, finding a class that can teach you advocacy skills is, is really important. So those, those are the two main things I would recommend, you know, getting the right team, the right provider, educating yourself. And then if I had to add a third, it would probably be look into hiring a doula um, mm-hmm. to help you navigate the system. Yeah, I always feel like i I'm trying to tell people the importance of having a doula. And first of all, they usually start out with what's a doula. And if I can get them past that, the next thing is, why would I pay somebody to be a doula? My husband, my partner, my mother, my whoever. It's like, no, it's not the same. It is absolutely not the same. They are not a trained support person. And I can tell you from having worked nights more times than I want to admit to, at 2 o'clock in the morning, the family falls asleep in the recliner. The doula doesn't. She is there to do what needs to get done. So let's talk a little bit about then, let's talk about your book. And uh, the, here's the thing I want to know right off the bat. What was the part of your book that you liked best or that you most enjoyed writing? So that's a good question. I think I liked... I, one of the things I like about the book is that it's unique. It's not like a guide or a how-to to childbirth. Instead, it's a story. So it's like it's a nonfiction book. It's part memoir and part facts about the research and about our healthcare system. So one of the things that I really love is is being able to share the story the stories of the things that I've gone through as well as people who've impacted my life and use those stories to illustrate the evidence. So it's a it's a way to learn. At the same time, I feel like readers are entertained because they're like, what happens next? What happens next? You know, <laughs> yes, but at the same true. time, they're like learning while they're reading. So it's a very different kind of, of birth book than any of the other books out there. So I think it was the story that was inside of me that I hadn't really told many people and it was time for me to, to share the things that had happened to me, you know, as a, as a public figure and someone in the birth world, I just needed to get the word out there that, you know, these things are still happening to women and there's a way to prevent it. And let's talk about preventing birth trauma. Absolutely. And for those of you who are wondering, I don't want you to think that Dr. Decker has a research study here or there, or maybe tucked somewhere else. No, 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 no. She has got dozens of research articles. And and by the way, these were substantial studies uh, that she uses to illustrate her point. And I would say sometimes she's got at least a dozen strong studies just on one page, for heaven's sakes. So uh, by all means, take a look at Babies Are Not Pizzas uh, and tell us, Dr. Decker, uh, where can we find your book? You can find it anywhere online where books are sold, including Amazon. Also, if you go to evidencebasedbirth.com slash book, you can get the first chapter of the book for free, both uh, an audio chapter and a digital chapter, so you can check it out. And the book is also available on Audible as an audio book. Fantastic. Uh, I would say... 
you'd be foolish not to get the first chapter because the first chapter is pretty riveting. So by all means, uh, take her up on her offer. Dr. Decker, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, we've got more on birth trauma. So if you are interested, by all means, hang around. We're here to help you with your birth and with your breastfeeding experience. And make no mistake, those things are absolutely related. And from now until next week, just remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.